My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Helen Knott. One of the sharpest fault lines in this country today is between Indigenous peoples protecting their homelands and the one-two punch of corporations in the Canadian state trying to push forward a wide range of projects that are both colonial and environmentally destructive. Many of these are connected to the Alberta tar sands, either directly or indirectly, but many others are not. In other words, this violence in the service of profit and the indigenous resistance to it are not about one megaproject, but, as has been true for a long time, are a central feature of how colonial capitalism works on this continent. Helen Knott is from Prophet River First Nation, and she lives in Fort St. John, both of which are located in northern British Columbia. She is a mother, a writer, and a social worker, and in recent years she has been deeply involved at a grassroots level in the opposition to the Site C Hydroelectric Dam Project. That project was originally proposed more than four decades ago, and opponents have thought more than once in that time that it was stopped for good. The project was revived once more at some point in the last decade, however, and if the current incarnation of the dam is completed, it will flood an 83-kilometer stretch of the Peace River Valley, destroying territory of the Daneza and Cree peoples in the area. Though the project has been green-lit and construction has begun, after a consultation process that many local residents felt was designed from the outset to be completely marginal to official decision-making, two First Nations in the area have launched a lawsuit to stop the dam. Along with this legal action from the official community leadership, residents have also been mobilizing at the grassroots level. This has included an annual paddle for the peace along the river, various efforts to be present on and honor the land of the valley that is threatened with flooding, and much more. When not moved back to the territory, she first got involved by attending events that others had organized, and then started getting involved in the organizing herself, with such things as a highly successful community fundraiser. She was a central organizer of and participant in the Rocky Mountain Fort Land Defense Camp that blocked construction of the dam for 63 days earlier this year, until it was ended by a colonial court injunction. Most recently, she was involved in organizing the cross-country Treaty 8 Justice for the Peace caravan that brought people from the affected territory to communities across the country, with the aim of raising awareness about the resistance to the Site C project, and also to make sure that people who lived on that land were present when the lawsuit against the project was heard in a Montreal courtroom. A judgment is still likely months away, but in the aftermath of the highly successful caravan, grassroots resolve to oppose the project has only strengthened. Not speaks with me about the Site C Dam project, the land and people that it will harm, and the resistance that has taken place so far. We spoke by Skype to phone from Fort St. John. Tansay Jehanati, my name is Helen Not, and I am a member of Prophet River First Nation, living in Fort St. John, BC. I am a mother, a writer, a social worker within the territory, working with Indigenous peoples, doing support and advocacy. Site C is a 83-kilometer 
mega hydroelectric project that has been shut down twice previously within the past four decades. This time, they've managed to get approvals and recently, in late July of this year, have received permit approvals from the new federal government relating to the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. I got involved with the fight against Site C at a grassroots level, I think about five or six years ago. And it all started with my own personal healing and decolonization journey and how land was so central to that process. I remember taking my son to look out in the valley and he was small then, he's eight now. He was probably about four years old. And I told him about what was going to be happening in the valley and where they wanted to flood. And we talked about what kind of animals live there. And he said, well, that's not good. And I said, I know, right? And he said, well, why don't you go put some stuff in there? And I said, well, what stuff? I said, you know, the stuff that you pray with. And I was like, oh, like tobacco. You mean go do an offering? And he said, yeah, that'll stop it. So, you know, from that moment, then I did a Indigenous youth grassroots camp within the Valley, really working at reconnecting young people to the Valley and reconnecting them with the stories. So we had elders come out and tell stories. During that time was the first time I heard some of the stories about first contact within our area and what that looked like, or looking at some of the burial sites that are within the valley of our people. And from then on, I've been involved in many different ways. A lot of it was fundraising and supporting the legal battles that are continuing. Last year, me and my family, we had about three generations out and we walked the span of the valley in the summer just in order to honor the land and to be able to pray for it. More recently, things had, I guess, escalated because they just keep moving forward in terms of working on the stem while there are still court cases in play that need to be heard. And I, along with a group of other people, set up a camp at the Rocky Mountain Fort Camp, which is a historical site along the Peace River. And we held off construction for 63 days, I think, and it was the middle of winter. It was set up in like minus 25 weather in this remote tract of land that you have to skidoo to, barely any cell service. And, you know, it was really challenging. I'm not a person who thrives on conflict either. So it was hard for me to be in those spaces, but felt it was necessary too, because I plan on, even if I do move for work here or there, that this is my home and I will always come back to it. And I want to live and die here because this is where my people are from. And this is the land that I want my son to know and want my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren to know because our stories will be tied to that land. And even if they don't know me, if they know the land, then they know me through that. After that struggle, BC Hydro hit seven of us with a civil suit where we were being sued. I'm a single mom and I just got out of school, so I don't have anything <laughs> anyways. And then after that, they got their injunction and then the camp was dissembled and removed. And just more recently, in conjunction with the federal appeal court case by West Moberly First Nations and Prophet River First Nations, me and a group of people did a caravan. So it was called the Treaty 8 Justice for the Peace Caravan. And we went across country and we stopped in major cities to talk about Site C and to really highlight the struggle here to fight this project, but also just some of the items about the project that don't make sense. Like in 2010, they greenlighted the project and it didn't have to go through the BC Utilities Commission's review, which is basically like a safeguard in regards to projects like these that look at A, is this project needed? Is the power needed? And B, is it in the best interest of the ratepayers? Well, 
the second time that they wanted to move Site C forward, the BCUC shut it down. It was seen that it wasn't needed and it wasn't in the interest of the people. So that project got halted. And there were so many questions as to why did it not go through this process again? You know, why are they destroying an area that has the best agricultural land north of Quinell when northern communities struggle with food security? It has this unique microclimate there. And also there's farmers within the valley that have been there for generations. It's just been a long and arduous journey and a really hard struggle to be heard and to be able to gain more public awareness surrounding the project, which we've been focusing a lot of our efforts on. And I really hope and feel that this caravan has also been able to do that. Talk more about the territory that is being affected by this. What's the land like? Who lives there? That kind of thing. The dam that they want to build is along the Peace River. And even the name itself, like the Peace River, that comes from a historical moment where the Deniza and the Cree decided to make peace because they were warring. And so that's where that name itself originates from Indigenous context. And there's already two dams on this river. The first dam to go up was the WAC Bennett Dam. And when that dam went up, it literally flooded people out of their homes. It was the Seike Dene and the Kodacha. And those two bands, I know the Seike Dene have family ties and communities over here. Previously to when the dams were built, those ties were severed because that river was like our main artery, right? It was the river that all the other ones flowed into. And so that was how we connected with other people within the territory. Just recently too, BC Hydro unveiled this interactive display in their information center at the WC Bennett with quotes from people from surrounding communities on this side of the river and that side of the river in regards to the impacts of that first dam. And when they did that, they said, we will never repeat the same mistakes again, which is funny because they're building Site C as we speak when they did this unveiling too. There's several different Indigenous communities within this area. Right now, though, the only two that have court cases against it are West Moberly and Prophet River First Nations. It's a beautiful stretch of valley, and it's in this area that we live in, in our territory in the Peace River region, which is Treaty 8 territory. There's such a mass amount of oil and gas development. There's not a lot of towns, and it's not highly populated, but in the back roads and everything, there's so many developments that... We don't have a lot of places that are left pristine and untouched within this territory. We don't have a lot of places that haven't been developed. And the Peace Valley is one of those last regions. And even saying that, there's impacts from the previous dams that still affect it. Like there's still methylmercury levels from the dams that make it so that you cannot eat more than one fish every two months. And we're fighting to keep what we have, and what we have has been impacted already by development, too. So when you first moved back to the territory, around the time that the initial approvals began to come through, what were the conversations like in the communities in the area? I think a lot of people were upset at that time. I know that there was a lot of mourning on part of the elders, mourning that loss of land and the memories that they had tied to it. That's when you heard a lot of stories, I guess, surface about different places within the valley that would be lost. And I think everybody who goes through there knows, too, how important it is in terms of a migratory corridor. 
the idea of that impact long-term on hunting was scary for a lot of people too. I know that it still hurts today with it going on. It's not just that initial reaction to it, but it's that process of living in a territory and then having to be slowly disconnected from it and watching projects like this move forward, which results in almost a kind of trauma too. I know that the Native Youth Sexual Health Network and another organization came together and they did this study and, and it was the first time I had seen it defined and they defined it as land trauma and it was that forced separation between person and land. I know that there was a lot of outrage and sadness amongst the communities within the beginning. And, you know, I and they say this with like with a heavy heart too, but I think throughout these past few years with the project like moving forward and permits being approved that as a people sometimes we get so used to things being taken from us that it makes more sense not to fight than to give it all you have and I think with some people they've almost come to terms with it sorrowfully but there's still a lot of people that are outright against it or do whatever they can in order to support efforts to stop it. Hearing Chief Roland Wilson the other day when we were in Ottawa and he was speaking on a panel and talking about some of the stories that his mom had told and that emotion rose up and, you know, and trying not to cry because the whole idea of it is emotional for people. It's a big loss. And at that point where you first got involved, what were people already doing to express and enact their opposition to the Site C Dam? I know that while I was gone, they had the community consultation sessions. People came in and they were able to tell their stories. And a lot of it from speaking people who were involved in that process felt like it wasn't consultation, but it was like, here's a place to vent. And then we're just going to do what you need. And being frustrated with that process. I know that people, when I initially moved home, though, still also had a lot of hope. I remember organizing a fundraiser that was really well supported. and It was just community level. And we had a lot of traditional artists come together for that. And a lot of people from the various communities. And that was a time of strong hope as well. And even with the Rocky Mountain Ford, as hard as that struggle was, I think it took a while for people to believe in that and to believe in the possibility of stopping this project. We have the annual Paddle for the Peace in this area, too, which is a joint event between Prophet River First Nations, West Mobile First Nations, and I think the Peace Valley Environmental Association. That's an annual event where they paddle the peace, and that has been really, really well attended, and there's been more support every year. So that's something that was a positive way to come together, to be able to be on the land and enjoy the land and enjoy the water and listen to other people talk about pathways forward and to gather with other like-minded individuals. And I know during that time, not last year, but for the three or four years consecutively before that, at the same time, there was a youth and elders gathering within the valley that would lend support to the paddle for the peace. Being there and having that gathering there of youth and elders from the territory was that active reclamation of space as well. Tell me about your involvement in the opposition to the dam. When I moved back, the first thing that I had gotten involved with was just kind of reconnecting with people and listening to more stories. I know that they opened a place that they call Protesters Point. So I supported the events that had existed at first. 
going to the opening of that, which is a place at the edge of somebody's property that overlooks the current dam construction, the process of it. There's a little cabin out there that people can sit at, and it's a good place to take people that are visiting. After that, I did a fundraiser, I think was my first one, and it was just rooted in community, and we had a lot of local artists come out and support that. After that, it was the Rocky Mountain Fort, so I went from fundraising and then jumping in two feet to being in a land defense camp. Initially, I think in the fall of 2015, some individuals from Total First Nations, Art Napoleon, and I think his relative Bud went out there and they set up a canvas tent. And they were talking about that place as a historical site for Indigenous and non-Indigenous relations. And nobody had occupied that space. It was just there and it was made to be known that there was a camp there. They erected signs signifying that it was a historical heritage place. And then on December 31st, I was asked if I wanted to take some young people out there. I wanted to take some young people out there because I do a lot of working communities and just reconnecting them to land and telling some of those stories and being in that active reclamation. So I went out there on New Year's Eve and it's this crazy maze of back roads in order to get out there. And the fellow who was down there drove up on Skidoo and met us up at the top and took us down. And in between that time of him coming up and going back down, BC Hydro had come over and they had posted eviction notices. These eviction notices said, you know, you have 24 hours to vacate the premises. Otherwise, you could pick up all of your items from the RCMP station, da-da-da-da-da-da. And just before we got there, they flew in a shack. A shack got helied in. It had two bunks, a wood stove, and it doubled as the cook shack, too. When I got down there and I had these young people with me from the communities, they were scared. They were like, well, are we going to get arrested? Are the cops going to come? And not having any real answers of what that process looked like, because I'd never been in that situation before, what our rights looked like. And it didn't make sense to me. I was like, you know, this is our traditional territory. This is where, like, my grandfather's and your grandfather's, where we have rights that are under the treaty, rights that are constitutionally protected for us to be here. It doesn't make sense that we can be kicked off our lands just overnight within 24 hours with a piece of paper. And it upset me to see the fear in their eyes. It was intentionally, like at the beginning, for me, was going to be one night. But after that experience with them and seeing how scared they were and being upset by that, that's when things moved up into another gear. And we went down and seen the clearing because I wanted to take them there so we could do offerings and we could pray. And so we did that. And we were met with Hydro Security who told us to leave. And that was met with, I have inherent rights to be here on this land. From then on, it was just a continuous occupation where other community members came down. Sometimes we had elders come down. It was really, really hard to access. So it really limited the elders specifically, like who we could bring down because it was so rough. And we had other young people from the communities and we had a lot of ranchers and farmers and people who have been here for generations or even new here come and stand with us down there if it was even just for the day. Some would stay two days. It was really hard to juggle at the beginning because we had really limited sleeping space and it was cold. So eventually we got a larger shack that was flown in. 
We had a visit from, at that time, David Suzuki and Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, who came and stood in solidarity with us. And as we're walking down the path, me and David Suzuki, he was telling me about how he was involved in shutting the dam down the last time. And he's thinking, you know, and we thought we had beat it. And yet here we are again. So we were out there continually after that until BC Hydro was able to get the injunction. After the injunction, the next focus was the paddle and gaining momentum there. The paddle was in July, I believe. After the paddle, because we had a lot of people from different organizations here, is when we had a sit-down meeting, strategizing, and that's when the caravan arose. So it was pulled together very quickly within you know a month and a half span and spent a lot of long hours planning the logistics and reaching out to communities who were amazing. I know that they put in a lot of effort and time in order to host events in their home communities too. We had a caravan committee composed from the larger committee. We would talk weekly, but we all had our own checklist. And then there was myself and another individual who connected with the other communities. So then there was additional conference calls and additional planning, and each community had their own, I guess, intention and allowing them to take and shape and form those community actions. Like in Saskatoon, they were talking about all of the negative recent events and really wanting to shift that and being able to ground the event in ceremony and have, you know, a round dance and really infuse it with positive light and being able to journey on in a good way and being able to stand in prayer with them as well. And that was important for our caravan to have that too, as well as to be able to pray for the places that we stopped at and stand in solidarity. So there was all the different subcommittees that organized events and they organized the food. We had billets in one town. They organized rooms being donated to us, but in other places, it was people's homes who were opened up. You know, in Winnipeg, it was a community center, the Thunderbird House that hosted us overnight. And then we got to go to Meet Me at the Bell Tower, the weekly event in the North End Against Violence, where the community stands together. And for me, that one really stood out because we made these T-shirts that said, Violence Against Indigenous Lands is Violence Against Indigenous People. And being an Indigenous woman from this territory who has experienced violence on various levels and having that been like a focal point of my journey and healing from that and looking at the area in which we live and how violence is related to resource development and what it brings to our towns is knowing that those two are connected and believing that when you speak out for the land, you need to also speak out for the women. And so being able to stand with them in solidarity against violence was huge for me. When we reached our destination in Montreal, in the morning before the court case, we had our rally and we had a lot of strong speakers there. And I really admired the words of Chief Serge from Kenesatake, who talked about the upcoming treaty alliance. That means the nations that are signing on to it, they stand together. So if one says no to a project, they're going to stand in solidarity. For me, hearing him and hearing the other speakers there, it was that real sense of solidarity of being connected to this wider network. It was almost like it pulled all of the threads across the country together. And it was powerful and it was really good to be able to sit in the courtroom because all of the court cases that have happened so far have happened so far from community that I don't think we've ever had people travel as a group to any of the court cases in the past. So being able to sit in court and watch those processes It was good. And the lawyer had said that too. She said it makes a lot of difference doing that in front of an empty room versus people from the community. 
that was a big part of it. Decisions are continually made that impact community by people who haven't been to the territory or haven't set foot in the land. And we need to be present there because we're the tangible expression and the manifestation of those treaty rights that are being violated. And it ended really well in the evening because we got to go to kind of Sitake and they hosted us there. And it was beautiful. And then we went to Ottawa the next day. We had a rally on Parliament Hill, coincided with the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples anniversary. And Amnesty International hosted us on Parliament Hill. And we had other groups come out and support us. And I recognize it may be a bit soon to have an answer for this. But what's your sense of the possible next steps in the struggle to oppose the Site C dam? Through this process, we've made some connections. I've connected some community people with those connections because they're planning larger scale events or initiatives that will continue to raise awareness in different communities. I think one of the things is maintaining the public eye on this project and not to lose that momentum or that pressure within the next bit. And it's also saying, why does the amnesty put something out on this yesterday? And it was, well, why does the federal government have to wait for the court's decision? Why can't they rescind and stop the permit now? Why can't they honor that relationship that they said they were going to honor? And it's funny because before when they were pushed for a view on this project, they said, well, we can't say anything because it would be unfair because the matter is before the court. Well, that didn't stop them when they approved a bunch of permits, which is basically going the opposite way. That's not waiting for the matter to be resolved before the court either. So it's really maintaining that public awareness. And I know that a lot of people at the grassroots level work behind the scenes to make those things happen. Also, there's a lot of people in this community that do smaller acts of reclamation. I don't like using the word protest where they paddle down the river or, you know, they'll do different things to highlight their opposition towards the project. So probably be seeing some of those other things. When Grand Chief Stuart Phillip talked there, he said, you know, this has the potential to become like another standing rock and we don't want that. And having been through that process already, even for that short period of time, I know that I don't want that, but I know that I'm not willing to keep losing territory while they're waiting to make a decision either because that will give them another reason to keep moving forward with that project. It's a precarious place to be or a position to be in where you feel like, I heard it from one of the guys in the community in regards to this project, and he said, you know, I feel like a bear, like backed into a corner, and I don't have any other way out but to stand up and make my presence known. And I think we're just going to continue to use our voice in the ways that we need to and see what next steps may be. You have been listening to my interview with Helen Knott. She's from Prophet River First Nation and lives in Fort St. John, B.C., and we have been talking about the grassroots opposition to the Site C Dam Project. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.